Episode 2 of Season 2 of Pounding the Table. Last week, we got back to business. We brought out our shovels and deep dive into SE. This week, we'll be talking about Delta variant, huge acquisitions that have just recently happened, a few of our favorite D-SPACs, and stick around for an incredible interview with Scott Lynn, who is the CEO of Masterworks. Happy to be back. Season 2 is off to a good start. SE is hitting all-time highs very soon, and it's really rocking and rolling. Quick disclaimer here. Everybody knows the rules. The thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investment choices. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as our Twitter account, any other form of social media, pretty much everything, are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or any type of solicitation. And for those of you who are new, Pounding the Table is a podcast by Avi Mash and Anthony Johan and yours truly talking about the stock market the art of options trading and each week we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted and as always tony we always got to start with what happened in the markets this week so we always try to keep you humble but here's your chance to be cocky right you're kind of like miss cleo last week on twitter spaces Talk to us about what you were saying for those who missed it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, last week, I know the entire pounding team wanted to talk about so many names and like I totally wanted to as well. But the thing is, the markets have been showing a long time recently in the last week or two how it's not that strong. And it has this appearance. It's been looking very strong. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500 have been really, really ripping. But when you pull up the hood, you really look under the vehicle that's moving. It's not what it seems. So I posted this tweet and I'm actually really glad it blew up so a lot of people could see it and really understand how the market's internals are made up of. And we discussed this on the last podcast as well, but just wanted to like really throw it into detail here. So I'll just read this tweet here. I wrote, time for some math to explain the, why the markets are not what they seem. Since June 22nd, the NASDAQ has gone up 5.5% or 780 points from 14,120 to 14,900. And 206 points of that move came directly from the move Apple made, 118 from Microsoft's, 76 from Amazon, 59 from Google, and 34 of those points came from Facebook. So you add that all together, you've got 493 out of the 780 points made up by those five fang names. And that was 63% of all the gains that happened in that time period from when I posted that tweet. And here's the issue though, they only make up 42% of the NASDAQ. So they contributed 50% more gains to the NASDAQ than their actual percent weighting in the NASDAQ, which means that the rest of the market in the NASDAQ and also in the S&P was selling off at the same time. So while it appeared very strong, it's just you had the five big horsemen leading on the battlefield and everyone else was running for the hills retreating. And that is what people were disconnecting with. And the reason that was happening was because of options expiration, which we mentioned. That's why we went over the market cycles uh, last week on the podcast. And this is that market cycle of the monthly cycle, right? This options expiration that happens the third week of every month, usually on that Friday. And that's because a lot of stocks trade on that monthly cycle with their only options are monthly expiration. Indices do the same thing. And that's very important because that is why it held up on Friday. And then on Monday, because the market makers, you know, they easily held it into Friday. They pinned it. It started trailing off. Monday, they were free from that expiration on Friday. So it allowed those names to come back down. 
and you saw the S&P 500 drop. And luckily, though, growth started ripping at the same time. ARK hit the VWAP and we bounced back higher. And now the markets are running in tandem. So before the show earlier today, you were talking to me about SPX follows the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ follows the Dow. I know I probably have that all mixed up, but what were you saying about how they yeah. the different flows coming? Yeah. So, I mean, you could really see how like ARK, you know, went to 131 before the S&P 500 started really topping out. So June 1st is when I was like saying software and everything got extended because that's what ran into the end of the quarter. That's what the fund managers, that's what the big institutions wanted on their books at the end of it when they were window dressing. Those are the positions that are given the most alpha for their entire portfolio. So they run it into the top of the quarter, then they sell out and rebroaden back. And then you really started seeing Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google start running. So it went from high growth that sold off, went into to big tech. And now, you know, everything came back down and now it's kind of more broad, which is very nice. So if it happens again, you'll see a very big rally happen in growth names. And then once that starts to slow, then you'll continue to see stuff like the, you know, the big fang names, those huge market cap companies continue to run until they stall. And it's just this continuous oscillating cycle until the markets find the right way to be in this new paradigm between growth value, big tech and everything. Inflationary, deflationary pressures, tapering, not tapering, infinite money press, all those things need to come together and the soup's still being cooked. We do have some news splashing this week with Netflix. They got into games. Peloton also is getting into games. So is the world just kind of coming this one giant simulation? It feels like that the chapter in physics of the future where like literally no one's leaving their house. So are we living in this like black mirror? Is, are they predicting our future here? Yeah, it's finally getting to that point, right? It's crazy. You you would not assume that every company is starting to get into like making you be on their platform 24-7 in whatever way they can. So it's kind of crazy. Like Netflix added a customer every 0.9 seconds for the last 24 months. So that's a shit ton. And they're able to capitalize on the people who already spend hours, hours binging Netflix. You have that preset hardwire from the years and years that you've been on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is. But the only thing when I'm on my Xbox and I use Xbox that has all the apps and like I don't have a Roku TV because whatever. But I switch between Netflix and Xbox all the time because I'm an avid gamer. I play Fortnite, I play FIFA, whatever. But if I could embed that with Netflix, like it's one last click and that's enough, right? If it comes bundled up like the Xbox pass, if there's a Netflix pass and they have licensing deals or they create their own content or hell, like what if there's games within movies with your friends that you can all like play, like whatever, like detective or clue, or I have no idea what they're going to come up with, but you've got hundreds of millions of users and there's a way to make money there. And Netflix is not afraid to raise prices by a dollar. They do it every year. And that's a great options play every time it happens. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really kind of like all this M&A that's happening. They're doing their own M&A. They're building out those new legs of the business that we always talk about. And so it's it's kind of interesting going alongside in parallel with all those big names that we talked about when we first started the podcast that we saw that there's going to be those huge names that are just going to start to accumulate. And that's, you know, that corporate America that we see some of the biggest winners winning, continuing to win over and over again. And Tony, that really kind of leads us into the next segment of the show, which I'm super excited about. We're going to be introducing the world to Mr. Don Rinaldi, who is our first pounder, who's going to actually be joining the Pound on the Table network. So Dom Rinaldi is going to be launching Dom's Deep Dives on YouTube. So Dom, want to introduce all of Pound Nation to yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about the show as well. Yeah, Avi, thank you for just inviting me on today. I remember listening to you guys cutting the grass in June 2020 uh, and just saying, what are these guys doing? Like talking about trading and investing uh, and talking about being an invader. Uh, it turns out 
after all this time, I'm an invader now. <laughs> I can't believe that Tony got me to change my mindset on how to look at opportunity costs and look at you can still be a long-term investor, but at the same time, opportunity cost matters to maximize your returns. And I sold $20,000 worth of Shopify to go into other leading growing stocks that are smaller, that have brighter futures, uh, or not even brighter futures, but just a faster growth rate. And so I'm so appreciative of all the content that you guys have put out. I'm 36. I have two kids. I'm married uh, and I sell cybersecurity for a living. Uh, but I have the opportunity to talk about my passion, which is investing and helping educate others, learn how to invest, learn how to do deep dives, learn how to do their due diligence and beat the market and pound the table. Uh, and that's what I'm so excited to be a part of because you guys got me to be a pounder. You guys got me to be inspired and I want to inspire other people. So I'm hoping that this YouTube channel will do just that. I'm cracking up, man. Honestly, I, I thought there was no one in the world that loved stocks more than Tony. But if there was, that might, it, that might be, take the cake it might be yeah, you, honestly. We're, we're so excited to have. So let's just jump into it, Dom. Let's, let's throw you in the deep end because I know you love those deep dives. So <laughs> going along with some of this news, right? We, we always talk about these new legs and one of your favorites, the trade desk, TTD, just sprouted a new leg themselves. Yeah, Avi, this is now my number one holding position. Thanks to Tony, you know, helping me understand the invader uh, mentality. I did trim some Shopify and Jeff Green is a founder-led CEO. He's young. He understands programmatic advertising better than anybody in the industry. And they, he keeps innovating and understanding where the market is going. We know that we have walled gardens with Facebook, Google, Amazon. And he knew this ahead of time that privacy and antitrust was going to be an issue with the government. So eventually they dropped their policies. And we know that what Google's going to do here in the next year that got postponed, they were already working on this unified ID 2.0, an open internet approach to advertising. When I go to a website, I want to be advertised if it's something I'm looking for. That's why people go to Pinterest. They want to know their idea and what they're actually looking to search for. They want to have help and guidance. The same thing is around the concept of open internet. If you get good ads that you care about and you're searching for, wouldn't you rather have that than some ad that means nothing to you and totally just distracts you from what you're doing? So with this, they not only launched a new product that's focused around getting ahead of this before Google puts those policy changes in place, their product is Solomar. And so they made a mid-July announcement around this. And one of their uh, VPs for client development, Amber Brown said, it's important for us to get marketers enough time to learn and onboard before October when brands stop testing new things and focus on what they know works for the holiday season. They're already thinking ahead. Q4, people. Q4 is when advertisers go crazy. They're trying to get in front of that. That is forward thinking. That is founder-led. That is knowing programmatic advertising and knowing their market. 
So the trade desk is trying to spur more brands to plan campaigns based around specific KPIs. For instance, Walmart and Home Depot store sales, Oracle sales data. They're trying to make sure that you have those KPIs and they're able to back those claims around what kind of guarantee can you get the return on buying this advertisement. So if you can tell me I'm going to get X amount of customers or X amount of net new dollars because I put my ad where you told me to place it, why wouldn't I do that? That's the power of data. And what we talk about all the time on the podcast, data is currency. It's the new money. So with that, they also added a venture capital arm called TD7. This is called growing new legs of revenue, many monsters expanding, just like C Limited, having six different brands of revenue and six different businesses. Now they're taking a page out of this and they're becoming entrepreneurs with venture capital funding. We see this with SPACs, we see this with growth. They already bought their first bidding software company, Chalice Custom Algorithms. They're thinking about, can I be smarter on getting ads? So. That's why I'm excited about Jeff Green and the trade desk. That's why it's my number one position. That's why I invest in founder-led companies. That's why you brought your shovel, man. You were diving in deep. All right, Dom, another huge stock making waves this week was Microsoft. So everyone knows, of course, the tweet that was heard around the world. I got like 600 likes on oh it. Oh my God. But besides, <laughs> it was the most ridiculous tweet. I, I thought that was a joke. But the biggest news is Microsoft also made some acquisitions this week. So being in cybersecurity, this one I was really excited to hear you talk about. They made an acquisition of Risk IQ as well as CloudNox. So talk to us a little bit about those and, and what they mean for Microsoft. They're, they're like sprouting legs left and right with TDOC news as well. So really excited to see a big company like that make some you know fresh waves here. Yeah, I got to be careful with what I say because I do work in the cybersecurity landscape. But what I will tell you is this is a big landscape. This is a big ocean for everyone to win in in the market today. Uh, and so Microsoft sees that as well. So they did acquire several security companies. And they also, earlier in the year, acquired Nuance Communications for medical transcribing text-to-speech. So when we look at these mega cap companies, we need to see that they're looking at expanding in new revenue streams, new industries and finding growth in new areas. So they did acquire a company called Risk IQ for cybersecurity, uh, and they serve 30% of the Fortune 500 and 6,000 organizations globally. They just announced earlier today that they acquired CloudNox, which helps companies reduce the amount of access that they provide to the cloud resources. Basically just saying, is Avi accessing this application in this cloud? And should it be looking at this and accessing these files. And so with that, it's all around zero trust security. So um, once again, though, there are a lot of leaders in the space. One of the companies I work for, VMware, is one of those and partners with Microsoft in a lot of things. So I think overall, you can't go wrong in this space because it's continuing to be a growing area of concern. And there's also, we have to defend the Western Hemisphere. So very much bullish on the environment and the industry. Yeah, I mean, I love seeing all these different acquisitions and M&As kind of go on, you know, in this market, especially knowing that a lot of these companies, people are looking at them as like, you know, these one hit wonders just from 2020 and just because of COVID. And, you know, while they benefited because of COVID, it does not mean that they're not going to be continuing to benefit without COVID. And whether it's here or not, they're going to be doing acquisitions, they're going to be adding new revenue legs and making new businesses. So another one that I think is probably the bellwether, if it's not like Teladoc, it'd be probably 
probably Zoom for all of COVID, right? Like we're all recording on Zoom right now for this podcast and people I'm sure have a lot more Zoom meetings this year than they had last year, right? Combined. So that's important to know, right? Like, and Zoom is one of those companies that's starting to offer a bunch of new products. Uh, And I know Dom is very bullish on Zoom. And I think he did call this on either like the last pod we had with him or one of the spaces saying that Zoom is a prime target for one of those companies that's going to buy someone at a new leg of optionality. And definitely want to dive into that, Dom, because it's actually making me interested in Zoom again, considering it's down a lot from its highs. And I think their acquisition just now is fantastic. No, I agree, Tony. And once again, founder-led CEOs. Eric Yuan is a brilliant CEO, and I don't know any other CEO that could handle the challenges that were thrown at him. They did not expect to have millions and millions of customers adopt their technology during the pandemic, having to be nimble, having to stop all of their R&D budget and actually address the security concerns that they had and take action and meet those encryption needs that they had to take place. So Don, real quick, this acquisition that Zoom just made, they just spent 15% of their market cap on a company that's named after my height. What's this massive acquisition <laughs> of 5.9? billion. Yeah, so a lot of people thought this was a private company but it's been public and it's been around for 20 years. So unless you work in this space, like myself who used to work in call centers, you don't know about this software. So Five Nines is a virtual contact call center company, uh, one of the leaders in the Magic Quadrant for, for Gartner, and allowing not only for employees to be more proficient around taking calls, providing customer service, AI chatbots, a better customer experience, but also for managers to manage their remote employees and their call center agents that they're efficient. They're hitting their KPIs, bringing back that KPI terminology that we talked about earlier, making sure they're operationalizing their performance. And this allows them to now be the hybrid workforce company of choice. This is what I called like Years ago, about a year and a half ago, Zoom is not a video conferencing company, right? If they wanted to just be that, they've tapped out. They're done. They're done, okay? They're not. They're not done at all. Eric Yuan wants to be the next type of Microsoft company, right? They want to be the choice partner for hybrid workforce. So now with Five9, what does it give them? It gives them a company that has five-ninths of stability and uptime on their cloud, Okay, so how annoying is it? We actually were literally in Zoom right now and it cut off. Okay, we were recording this with five nine supporting them. It would not have happened because they have five ninths worth of uptime. Okay, here's a perfect use case of why they bought them out. It also allows them to have performance management for their sales makers. It allows them to do bookings of calendars. And let's say Tony wants to go take a longer lunch. He can have an AI chat bot actually take over his shift and have responses for conversational cloud usage, okay? That's amazing. So they are not done. They just announced today, people aren't paying attention to the news that they are actually looking at investing in a blank check deal that would make them investors. I don't know full ownership of Cvent, but Cvent is also has 4,000 employees worldwide. They have 280,000 plus hotels and venues that they support and 4.9 million events that they've had since 1999, they are the hospitality and virtual event leader, 
Okay. Wow, that's they, the fate loves irony, Dom. They're moving into hospitality, travel, and leisure, which got wrecked during COVID. But they did so well during COVID that now they're taking up the space that got hurt during COVID. So that is what's called innovation. You're so right. And I would not be surprised if you see them buy someone who has an email client or there's been rumors of them developing their own instant messaging and email client. Discord, Dom. Then? Discord. Who knows? It's out there. They have the cash. They didn't have to go public to be profitable people. They did. They went public so that way they could get the brand recognition and then scale and use their shares. And so they could get money. our money too. Yeah, exactly. your money, my money, That's Avi's exactly money. Right. And then they can go build out and make this us all more money. This reminds me of like that, the happy Gilmore scene where at the piano where he's like, we've only just begun. I feel like that's the CEO <laughs> right now just with the Zoom. Just A lot of these companies too, man. They're just ready to go. The optionality is the new currency too. Data optionality. And that's what I look for is companies that run high gross margins and operational margins. So that way they can use that cash to reinvest in the business. I don't PE want them is, to. Yeah. Yeah. No, say it. You got it. You were... PE is bullshit. And that's yeah. the thing. Like, it's not about that. It's it's really where you're going. And, and, and we had a nice back and forth on Twitter about that. Like, there's a lot more important metrics to look at than just PE. Because if you looked at Netflix or Amazon or Tesla or any of these PEs, You'd be a shit investor with making no money. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you would miss the best names on the market that were clearly like the biggest brands out there the whole time. I don't want a CEO that I'm investing in to think small. I want a CEO that's going to think big, bigger than your brain can imagine. And I'm going to keep spending that cash because I know where my company's going next. And I have a grander, bigger vision. Elon Musk, Satna Yadella. Jeff Bezos, the list goes on and on. Eric Yuan, those are the type of leaders, Forrest Lee, C-Limited, like we just talked about. That is what I want. You, When you invest, you invest in people, Tony. Yeah, 100%. David Schwartz wrote a book, The Magic of Thinking Big. That's a, that's a phenomenal book. I don't know if you've read that down, but that just kind of triggered that in my brain here. Nope, um, but it's going to go on my Audible list. It's also on Tony's desk because I bought it from him and he hasn't read it yet. So that yeah, was I have my like four uh, Avi books here. I have to get through, man. I'm still like on the second one. Passive aggressive take there. So being passive aggressive, let's continue, Tony. On spaces, I said I was going <laughs> to go through your tw old tweets, right? And I was going to find one and put you on the spot here. So you have written a tweet here on July 18th. You said, thank the stars, futures aren't up. And we've kind of talked about this on, on previous podcasts you know, just the recency of futures. But what did you mean about that? Because you actually retweeted yourself and you said, you see now why on July yeah. 19th. So what happened the next there? day? <laughs> right. So, I mean, here's the thing. That whole tweet was just about like the, the tweet I posted last week, which we just went over about which part of FANG increased the NASDAQ, what percent. And so that all just spilled over into Monday. And that's why I was saying like Monday was a very predictable down day. And that's why I was very cautious on spaces. And I said, the SPX will come down because those four or five fang horsemen held up the market so knowing that if you go into sunday like sunday night futures if we're up like five or ten spx only and the last two days were shitty we are going to sell off like a lot of the time during the day and the nice thing about mondays being down is a lot of the time first of all if you're in options it's okay because your premium still holds pretty well even like even if it's down like 50 60 points on spx or 80 points as it was a lot of the growth names that were in did not dive the same and it was very nice because it did let arc go all the way down to the vwap and bounce back 
and you could see the rotation happen. So you need something to go down in order for rotations to happen. And that's what people were like, that's what I was trying to get at by this. It's like, since SPX was down so much, you knew money was first of all coming out of the market, but there's so much money supply and liquidity that it's going somewhere else. And it went right back into the ARC name. So ARC went from 114 to 122, right? Like a six or 7% move because futures were down. And that's why I said, you see why? Because everyone on Fintwit was screaming rocket emojis the next day. And they're saying you can't time it. Like that is how the market flow was always going to be. And the market showed you, right? Like, and then the next day right, on Monday, puts were $30 at the money for the next day. And when puts are that expensive on S&P 500, we hardly ever dive because the incentive is not like the market to dive to go down. Like you're not going to make that much money anyway. You have to go down 30 points more in two days after dropping 180 to make any money which is just not logical. The market makers know that that's stupid. The risk is to the upside. So then the market makers buy shares and the shorts have to cover. And then we rally back up and squeeze the same way we did the first time in the same way we came down. Let's shift gears a little bit. Got to uh, got to talk about COVID here, right? We mentioned a little bit about this last week, but you know, just as people were ripping off their masks, ladies put away those wax and vax shirts because the DV, aka Delta variant, has entered the stratosphere. Everyone's kind of talking about this across every news outlet right now. Even even Fox is saying go get vaccines, which never happened in the past, right? And so there's a lot of negative news <laughs> happening around this Delta variant. But Tony, we're optimistic, so we're searching for good news. Tell us what happened over in Israel. Yeah, we'll, we'll give the bad news first and then we'll give the good news. So the bad news is exactly as I predicted, like 95% is not going to be effective for everybody. He like actually, no joke, in our, he texted me like two weeks ago. You're like, Avi, wait, this thing's coming. And yeah. sure enough, it did. It Dude, I was watching the first COVID strain when there was like less than a thousand cases. Just like I would remember watching the John Hopkins tracker like back in early Feb. Like it was crazy. And it just expanded crazily. And I, I could see the, the FUD and the fear that was going on with the Delta variant. And then there was real studies that came out and backed what exactly what I expected. The reason you get a flu shot every year is because every year the flu changes and the flu is already only 37% effective and max 50% effective, but it's only 50% effective for flu type A, which is actually weaker than flu type B. I'm pretty sure that's the way. If not, it's vice versa, but regardless, it's not 95%. So knowing that every year the flu is a variant, like it has a variant, which is why we have to get a flu shot every year. COVID is obviously going to be the same, if not worse, in terms of mutation. And that's why I'm saying we're going to go down the alphabet. Now we're talking about the Lambda variant. And now there's you know, there's a Delta Lambda. And we're going to keep going because there will be a ton of variant strains of this. Because as it continues to pass, the longer it's alive, the longer it can mutate. It's like a game of telephone. It hops to each host. Eventually, there's a mutant break. And it changes. And it becomes a different virus. So looking at Israel's data here, they proved exactly what I was thinking. Like It's going to be less strong against this variant. And that's because viruses evolve as companies do. So the ministry said, you know, that the vaccine was 64% effective in preventing infection and 98% effective in preventing serious illness. But they said that the numbers are actually lower than they were showing two weeks ago. So we'll, they're, they're still in process of showing up what the actual numbers are, but it's less than 64% effective because that's what they said. And they said it's lower and it's less than 93% effective in preventing serious illness. But once again, your 95% is clearly not true. That's a FUD. But the thing that's really nice is that you're seeing a lot of really good things happen in genomics because of it. So the reason why this happened is because the vaccine's effectiveness eroded. And that's because the Delta variant is better than the previous variants at breaking through the vaccine's immune protection. And because the effectiveness wanes off, obviously, like the longer it goes through those two doses and the virus mutates. And so it's this continuous vicious cycle. 
But what's cool is that CRISPR showed some interesting data from Australia, like some Australian researchers showed that using CRISPR, um, you can pretty much prevent the coronavirus infection from spreading in human cells in the lab. So they're now looking for a way to develop that treatment into an oral drug that could end up halting coronavirus transmission in people in general and potentially stop other viruses and other strains of it. So once again, this leads us into genomics. And that's why I went very bullish on genomics this week because Delta variant equals a focus on bio. And there's this, this genomics news just sitting there under the rug. And there's other things that were popping up like this and not to mention the recent Intelia and the CRISPR news. So all this stuff was kind of going on. And the reason this would be very cool is that an oral medication could be taken as soon as someone was diagnosed with COVID. And that could mark a turning point the pandemic and like what's to say this doesn't last for a couple more years with different variants and stuff as genomics advances this could potentially really help and a lot of these companies already help right like you have full gen genetics doing a lot of testing uh cmlf helps with that as well cma4 there's a bunch of other companies that are involved in this right now and so i think this is like an all hands on deck kind of thing and it's really going to advance medical science and just in general yeah and we were talking on our spaces nat haruni had brought up that you could even do it in an inhaler like it's literally inhale CRISPR just as you would if you had asthma with the albuterol, right? And so it's it's here, like the future is sprouting before our eyes. And we don't just talk about genomics week on week because it sounds cool. This shit is happening and it's going to be saving lives, which is the most obviously exciting part for me. And Tony, just to kind of shift gears again here, right? We've talked about these names over and over. We had SPAC attack season. We saw the death of SPACs. Our SPACs back, right? We're starting to see some of these DSPACs happen. We saw it with my baby share care. It stayed around 10, then it fell. I ain't scared. I'll definitely be adding more here because I, I absolutely love share care, but not to uh, derail the conversation. Talking about some of these DSPACs, should people be scared when this happens? Should they look to hedge? And also just really quickly share what stocks are DSPACing this week that we're super excited about. One. 100% Avi, CMLF's coming up. That's going to be SMFR. I know that you're not too happy about that as a ticker change. I thought SEMA would be cooler. Yeah, you know, SEMA, like, come on. <laughs> yeah, like it, there's, I, you know, it, it could have been better, but either way, that doesn't change anything about how much I like the company. And then, of course, we've got CCIV, the uh, bellwether SPAC that caused the rally and then the subsequent crash. And that's turning into Lucid. So that's LCID. And I do want to touch on something that I've noticed with a lot of these DSPACs, and it's pretty intuitive, just like follow along here. So if it's at $10 or lower, you can assume that the selling pressure of that SPAC is already there. The only thing holding it up is the redemption trust floor that's at $10. So logically, if it's just sitting there at 10 or 9.8 or whatever the hell, there is a very, very, very high chance that as soon as the trust floor is gone and it DSPACs and, and you have no protection at $10, that will flush. So that's what happened with share care. And that's why Avi was saying, like, I believe it could go down to eight or seven or whatever. It's because it was hovering at 10. So, you know, Lucid is hovering far above that. I actually think it'll be very bullish for Lucid because um, if you looked at like what happened to SoFi and a lot of these others, like once, once they did DSPAC, they had a little drop or they ripped right away if they were well over 10. And so like CCIV's pipe price is 15. And I doubt it's ever going to 10 again because then pipe investors will just be pissed and then just slam it more. So I think that that's not going to go under 15. But once again, like if you are worried and concerned about a DSPAC or a growth sell-off that comes coincidentally with the DSPAC and just makes a inopportune situation for you, then of course you can always hedge, right? Like for instance, I have the August uh, 10 CMLFs, $10 strike puts. So I have like every hundred shares, I have one put. So worst case, it goes to $5. Like I only lose what happens from 10 or from 12 to $10. And then plus like the 30 cents I paid for the puts. 
So whatever, and it can go down to five and then I'll just be able to buy twice as much CMLF. So that's the way that I'm playing it. Like because it's sitting at $12, I don't think it's going to go under 10, but I'd rather be prepared than have to, you know, be worried. I like to trade another day. Right. So that's the way I'm looking at that. Tony, we always talk about getting into venture capital uh, with peak life ventures. So yeah. could be more excited to introduce a new segment on the show. We're going to be featuring some extremely interesting private companies that are of course not public. You can't trade them today but they're really catching our attention. So first one we're really excited to introduce here is Scott Lynn, who's the CEO of Masterworks. And fortunate for us, he's here with us today. Masterworks is the first company to allow investors to buy shares representing ownership in great masterpieces of art, such as Warhol, Monet, and a lot more. So Scott, welcome to Pond in the Table. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, guys. So before we get started, I know, you know, obviously we're a stocks and an options show. Art is very unique. There's a lot of, of noise today in the news with NFTs, but we're talking traditional artwork here today. So what is your background, Scott? And, and just kind of introduce what is masterworks.io and more so why'd you start it? Yeah, it's a great question. So I've I've been starting technology companies for almost almost twenty years now. Um, have also been collecting art uh, over the same time period. So, you know, I I think for me personally, it's it's one of the most interesting asset classes there are. Um, if you look at art compared to the S and P for the past twenty five years, it's outperformed the S and P. Our research team did a did a study with Citigroup on on correlation rates. The correlation rate is very low. Uh, the loss rates are very low. The, the problem with the asset class is that in order to allocate to it, you have to have millions of dollars to buy a painting. And and we generally think that the most investable part of the art market are paintings a million dollars or more. So historically, you've had this this really large, interesting asset class, but there hasn't been a good way for people to invest in it unless they have millions of dollars to buy a painting or tens or maybe hundreds of millions of dollars to build a portfolio. So it's really been limited to to the top 1% for, for those reasons. What, what's really interesting to me is, is everyone right now is trying to, you know, securitize and tokenize a lot of different asset classes, but you guys are kind of going like, you know, a little old school here with the very classical and, and blue chip prize pieces of art. And I think that's very, very cool. And so with knowing that, and, and I know usually the price tags can be upwards of 10, 50, whatever, hundreds of millions of dollars for some of these, mm. you know, beautiful pieces. What kind of investors are you able to pull in now? You know, like what kind of minimums do you have? And maybe what's your biggest sale for that individual investor? Do you have a mix of people on the platform? Yeah. So, so today we really have people picking and choosing individual paintings to invest in. So these are generally paintings valued between $1 and $15 million a painting. Uh, our minimum investment per painting is $10,000. Uh, our, our membership team will lower that for certain investors if that's too high. But these are qualified public offerings. So just like Uber goes public, we take a painting, we file it with the SEC, and people can, can invest in the painting after that. So it's not limited to accredited investors. Mm -hmm. Both retail and accredited can invest uh, in these vehicles. In terms of filing with the SEC, right? Obviously, these are authentic pieces of art. How does that work from an authentication process? Yeah. So, I mean, most of the paintings that, that we're offering to investors are, are well-known paintings, right? So, these are paintings that have been in museums. They've, they've been, they're in catalog resumes. They, they have an exhibition history. Mm -hmm. um, so, so authenticity is not, not, not uh, really a, a question with, with these types of works. Um, although, it certainly can be a question if you're buying thousand dollar two thousand dollar three thousand dollar prints or something like that in the art market mm -hmm. there there are lots of uh, authenticity questions in in that segment of the market but we generally generally steer steer clear of that 
And so if I'm investing, you know, in a new Monet, right, you guys launched that. And I believe you guys typically have, you know, one or two paintings at a time. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on the time. I think right now we have three paintings that, that are available, but, you know, we're, we're launching one every 10 days or so at this point. If I invest in the Monet, is it an average time period of six months, a year? Could it be up to 10 years? I'm just trying to get a better gauge of what that time horizon looks like. And, you know, really, how do you understand the average ROI that you've seen over the years, I guess. Yeah. So, so there's lots of, um, there's lots of parallels between art and real estate. So I would think of art and real estate somewhat similarly in, in understanding the asset classes. So both are relatively illiquid asset classes. So we tell people to think about a three to 10 year hold. If you invest in a painting, because it's very hard to buy a $20 million basket today and turn around and sell it three months later for $30 million. Right. Um, so, th- so it does take time to really, to really recognize a return. So in terms of, of understanding the, the average return for paintings, the, the way that we think about returns or we calculate historic r- returns is very similar, again, to how you would, you would do it in real estate. So we look at similar sales of particular paintings by particular artists and how those similar sales have appreciated historically over time. And, and what you see for artist markets are that a, a lot of the, these artists, I guess at least the artists that Masterworks tracks, appreciate anywhere between 12% a year and you know in excess of 25% a year, all with varying degrees of risk or volatility. Mm-hmm. But generally it's you know it's a really it's a really interesting asset class. To start to diversify, you can't always just, you know, GameStop YOLOs are not going to be around 10 years from now, per se. So how do you talk to folks that are potentially interested in dipping their toes into that market? Yeah, you know, the thing that that I find interesting, at least with with public markets, where they are today, right? Like we we have valuations that are at their peak, maybe with the exception of the dot-com boom 20 years ago, right? So you you have valuations at an all-time high. There's tons of competition for public equities. I mean, there's tons of investor interest in all of these companies across the board, whether it's direct or whether it's through index funds. I think the thing that's super interesting about the art market is you don't have a lot of competition for these assets, right? Like you just think about it very, very high level. It's a $1.7 trillion asset class with $60 billion a year in transaction. Right, so we're the only firm that offers any investment product whatsoever for the asset class. So, from my perspective as an, as an investor, I want to be investing in assets where there's not a lot of competition for them inherently. Right, like I I, I want to put money in things that are valued and don't have capital chasing them, rather than than asset classes like public equity today, mm-hmm. where I think there's a lot of capital chasing, relatively few assets driving up valuations. Right. Scarcity is a huge thing for any investment. I mean, like if you have an oversupply of stuff and we've seen in the markets this last couple months an oversupply of these, you know, SPACs and these growth names, which essentially you can kind of think of, you know, one of these paintings as a SPAC, right? Like you're allowing these public investors to get into something that's some otherwise private, which is very interesting. And I, mm-hmm. I got a couple of questions just from the trading perspective here. So, you know, I know that the markets are obviously super volatile if we're talking equities. So, the volatility of art, how does that kind of look like? Let's say, you know, it's March 2020. How did art perform in that time? Yeah, so, so our research team, we, we have the re, the leading research team that really analyzes uh, art as an asset class and publishes publishes findings on it. It's kind of amazing. Our, our research team actually is the only research team that analyzes returns. Mm-hmm. Our research team was the first, the first research team to publish a, uh, a study on correlation with Citigroup at the end of last year. And one of the things that, that we, I guess what we mean when we talk about correlation is we talk about how does an asset class behave when, when compared to other asset classes? So if the S&P goes up, does art also go up uh, and so on? And 
you know, during the the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, that was actually the highest correlation ever between art and the S&P. That correlation factor was roughly 0.4, meaning that I, I think public equities at that time, if I recall correctly, declined uh, 50-something percent, art declined yeah. 40% of 50-something percent. So there, there was there was more correlation there, but but honestly, even a 0.4 correlation is not not hugely correlated. Um, we've also seen times where the art market has declined, the public equities have increased. Like in 2016, art market declined. The the, the best guess to that is uh, is Brexit and capital controls in China. Um, but yeah, it, it effectively is a is a very lowly correlated asset class um, with a correlation factor of less than 0.1. That's really interesting. I might need to pick some up for myself here to diversify my assets a bit here with that correlation. I was just you know, messing around with your site, started seeing that you could buy all these random pieces. Like, let's say that I invested at the IPO of your painting on your site. You can see in the secondary market, I can buy someone's 52 shares or someone's 100 shares. So walk us through a little bit how that works. You know, like, is there a certain time limit on, you know, that first IPO? And then is there a lockup for when you can sell? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so again, these these are public vehicles that are, that are filed with the SEC. So we we take the paintings public, and then they start trading on our trading platform ninety days after uh, the last mm-hmm. closing. So there there is a little bit of time between when the paintings close and people start trading trading shares in in the paintings. But you know, we're seeing we're seeing more and more activity on our trading platform. We launched at the middle of last year, the middle of twenty twenty. So I think we we now have something like one third of our investors with with trading accounts open, but oh, wow. that's that's growing quickly. So how does that work? I'd love to learn more about that. So there's a, like if if I again let's just say for even numbers, ten thousand dollars I invest into a piece of art. You know, six months from now, can I trade those? Then you're saying to someone else and get a return from someone else buying that at a higher rate. And if so, how do you? Yes. Rate what that's uh, worth before you're actually selling the, the artwork. Yeah, so that that's right. So we um, so if you invest in a particular painting today, uh, and then you decide you want to to list your shares on the trading market six months from now, you can just go into the trading platform, choose the price that you want to sell those shares at, and then other investors can can accept that price if they want to buy them. So it's just purely based off of the, the public market in terms of what someone's willing to pay versus that's how it, it stands today. Yeah, that's, that's how to think about it. And I guess there's two things that, that most of our investors think about when, when it comes to pricing those shares. One is, what are comparable paintings in the art market selling for? And, and we publish that data to investors. So if you invest in a particular Basquiat painting, for example, let's say it's you know, a 1982 Basquiat, mm-hmm. um, we will publish other 1982 Basquiats that are selling or similar to your painting to you when those sell publicly at auction. So you have a sense for what are comparable things selling for. And then we also do quarterly appraisals where we'll actually appraise down to the individual share level what we think your shares are worth. So Scott, love these quotes. You said art is somewhat of a currency neutral asset. When you're investing in art today, you're sort of buying a call option on the ultra wealthy. Just kind of want to know what you meant by that. Yeah, look, I I think uh, one of the questions we often get is why do art prices go up? And our best explanation for that is that art really is a global asset. You can buy a painting in New York, you can put it on a plane, fly it to Hong Kong and sell it. So it is, it is kind of a currency neutral asset in that, in that mm-hmm. sense, where you can buy it in dollars, you can sell it in something else. So, um, you know, the next question we get is what, what causes prices to go up on a global basis? And, and the best explanation really is that we believe our prices go up 
based on how much wealth the top 1% is acquiring. So if you believe the top 1% is getting wealthier, which definitely in the US has been the case, then you can see a lot of that population starting to buy art and buy art more, which drives up prices over time. So when, when people are investing in art, we tend to tell people very from a very macro perspective to think about the top 1% and how the 1% is behaving. Um, if the 1% is getting wealthier, art prices will probably go up. If there's things like wealth taxes, et cetera, that, that target the top 1%, then art, art prices could potentially go down. And Scott, I want to just pop in here again, kind of going back to what you're talking about with data, right? Because I come from a tech background. You guys have you know, mentioned that you're really kind of this tech company that's coming into a very old industry, right? We've seen tech come in and dominate industries like real estate that would have been old industries as well. But you guys are one of the very few companies that are actually jumping into traditional artwork. So I would love to know just a little bit more of, of what you can share around some of the data that you're collecting and how you leverage that data you know, within your business. Yeah. So the art market actually has a super interesting data set, which I, th I think is not well understood. And if you think about the art market very broadly being $60 billion a year in transaction volume, half of that approximately sells at public auction. So you you have a a very public data set on on how much these paintings have been selling for for decades. At Masterworks, our our data set goes back now, I believe, to the 1970s. So we have you know we have a very long track record of how different paintings by different artists over time have appreciated. But one of the things that really amazed me when we when we started Masterworks was how a lot of the data in the art market just hasn't been digitized. Now, when I use the word digitized, it sounds, sounds so old school, but basically we, we, had a, we had an okay data set to begin with, but we really, to get a complete data set, had to go out and buy paper auction catalogs going back decades and have a team of 20, 30 interns um, actually do data entry to get some of that data um, in our databases up to date. And for us, it's really critical because we're trying to understand how do certain segments of the art market appreciate? What's the volatility by different segment? Which artists in particular are accelerating most quickly? What assets are, are most investable to us? Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of that decision-making process is data. Mm -hmm. For music and everything that's digital, it's easy to start to pick up on trends of like these up and coming artists, right? So like, obviously everyone knows Picasso's, the Monet's of the world, et cetera. You know, how do we find like the next people of traditional art? I, I don't know how you guys go about doing that today. Some of these up and coming artists, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, people is a, people is a, people uh, is a hard one um, to explain, but, <laughs> but there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of artists in the, in the art world that are up and coming artists, most of those artists are not artists that we actually work with at Masterworks since our price point per painting starts at a million dollars and goes up. But there's there's definitely emerging artists that are interesting. You know, the way to think about the art market generally is that you, you have the primary market, which are artists who sell for the first time at galleries or through galleries. Mm -hmm. And then you have the secondary market, which is when paintings start selling for multiple times at auction. So all of the artists that we focus on really are secondary market artists uh, rather than than primary market artists. Knowing that there's all this data that's just maybe stored in these books that you were saying and, and combining all of that, maybe you'll be able to find those like younger scouts who are just now getting out into the market that you can see, you know, over the last five or 10 years, their art's appreciating and maybe they just haven't had that much exposure now. But of course, the 1% is getting ultra wealthy now. Do you think room for more art in the world, like just more traditional art to become very famous these days? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, it, you know, one of the things that, that we don't have good data on in the art market is kind of 
turnover within the market? Like, in a, you know, mm-hmm. once artists get to how kind of, you know, growth and contraction within within certain segments, you know, picking these very early artists, call it at a $50,000 price point that are going mm-hmm. to become the next Basquiat is, is super hard. I mean, I would say it's mm-hmm. you know, nearly, nearly impossible because so much of the success of an artist is not actually based on that particular painting, right? It's the gallery that represents them. It's the institutions that decide to collect them. There's so many, so many things that go into uh, whether an artist ultimately becomes very, I guess in our world, very expensive or not. They're just, just hard to predict. So let's dive further back into tech a bit here. So I know Masterworks originally designed uh, the platform to work in conjunction with Ethereum, but I had read that there were some issues with the, uh, you know, the SEC as to whether it's a security that you'd be selling and how it'd be regulated or should be regulated. And you decided to rebuild it off the blockchain. And then each particular piece of art is its own security that is registered with the SEC. Yeah, that's a very fast. Uh, that's a very fast way of compressing our, our year and a half regulatory blockchain process. But but yeah, we were the first uh, the first company to actually go on file with a public offering that had a blockchain component. I think the SEC has been very careful for a very long time on their position on blockchain, and I would even I would even say it's still unsettled today. Like the last time that we looked into this was maybe three or four months ago, and I think there was still one company that has a reggae offering on file with the SEC that has a blockchain component, which still has not been qualified, right? And this was, we were doing this three and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. So I don't think from a regulatory perspective, much has changed. I think regulators, mm-hmm. at least in the US, are still unsure how they feel about securities being traded on blockchain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for better or for worse, we don't actually see that improving, right? If anything, we probably see it, it getting worse rather than better, at least from a, from a regulator perspective. There hasn't been any, any real movement in, in, uh, in, seeing that, in seeing that change. And kind of jumping into NFTs just a little bit, you know, we're talking about blockchain and NFTs have been the craziest thing, you know, over the past month or two. With this explosion of NFTs, has that detracted from the traditional art markets or opposite? Has it brought attention kind of back into art being an asset, as you mentioned? Yeah, it's a great question. So we, you know, our perspective on NFTs, I guess, is, is multifold. One is, uh, is there value in NFTs? And that's a whole, whole separate conversation right. that, that we can talk about. But the other is, you know, what is the impact of NFTs on the art market? And I would say there's there's two things that have happened in the art market that are interesting. One is that we've seen major artists like Damien Hirst and others actually use NFTs as, as I would say, a distribution channel to sell art. Mm-hmm. So if you think about yourself as an artist, if you're a, if you're a well-known living artist today who sells you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars and work a year, you primarily sell through your gallery. Like your gallery is sort of the machine that, that makes mm-hmm. you money. Blockchain now has given artists a new distribution mechanism to sell directly to end users or I guess mm-hmm. end consumers of that painting outside of, outside of their gallery. So I think that's one dynamic that's interesting. And I'm not, I'm not sure how to think about that from a gallery perspective. If I'm representing an artist, do I also want to represent their work on the blockchain? Does that matter? Right. Do I care? I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how the, I'm not sure how galleries are thinking about that today. The second thing that's, that's really interesting, and all of your listeners are probably familiar with the Beeple sale that, that happened at Christie's. Of course. So the, the inside to that, which, which we found fascinating was that when we thought, you know, when, when this work of art sell, sells for over $60 million, we were thinking initially the sale can't be real, right? It has to be like two people mm-hmm. who are sort of collaborating with each other right. to mark the price way up. And after speaking with people at Christie's, you know, we quickly realized that the auction house had 
over 30 bidders registered that, that were unknown to them prior to the sale, which wow. in the art world is, is totally unheard of, right? Like you never, you never have 30 bidders register for anything to begin with, um, but let alone have those 30 bidders be totally unknown to the auction house, right? Like the art world's a relatively small community and people that are buying and selling $60 million paintings kind of, you kind of know who they are, right? Like they're, they're relatively, right. <laughs> relatively yeah. well-known names. So, so that was, that was a game changer. And then what we saw after um, that sale was that one of those people that registered to bid on the, the people work actually wound up buying a real Picasso. Um, I don't know if oh, you, wow. if you read about that. So, so we have seen crypto people come in to the auction market through NFTs and then mm -hmm. and then start buying real paintings. And I think that's that's a really interesting trend if that continues. Piggybacking off of that idea of people liking to hold something in their hands, right? That tangible nature of an item. So I know Beeple, for example, when he first started selling NFTs, once he began selling it with this like clear screen that can show your NFT in a physical world, they, they began selling way, way higher price and way, way faster. So I, I think that that's really interesting to know that somebody who would buy, a you know, a piece of a crypto NFT would also buy a Picasso. So I think it's just the quality. It doesn't really matter whether it's in the digital or the physical world and just bringing them to the digital world will take them to the physical and, you know, it'll probably cross pollinate there. Yeah, we, we do think that's interesting. I mean, what, one of the things that we struggle with, I think, with, with NFTs generally is kind of this concept of if I'm, if I'm effectively purchasing a digital image on blockchain, um, what am I getting outside of that image? And and today you're not really getting much, right? Like you're not getting any IP protection. Mm -hmm. You're not getting a copyright. You're really just getting a digital image that can be copied by your friend and also put on his TV in his home. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that, that bringing things into the real world do introduce an element of, um, you know, I want to say the word tangibility. I'm not sure that's a word, but, you know, something that's tangible combined with with something also that's that's more feels more rare and more scarce than than just just what's in the blockchain mm -hmm. you were talking about galleries before there's been this like cross-pollination now between nfts actually going into galleries so do you feel like that could potentially you know be a competition for you guys down the line or what's the future kind of look like for masterworks yeah, I mean, you know, for, for better or for worse, like the asset class that we're operating in is hundreds of years old. I, I like to use the stat with people, which is it's kind of hard to wrap your head around, but Sotheby's up until until recently going private was the oldest company on the New York Stock Exchange at 275 years old, right? So it's hard to even imagine that, but these, these businesses have literally been operating for centuries doing the exact same thing. And when we think about the asset class, we're, we're really analyzing it over over decades, not centuries, but but decades, to try to provide um, a sense for what what returns, um, loss rates, correlation, et cetera, can be to investors. So, you know, this this is not an asset class where you know you don't you don't invest in twenty million dollar basket today and have it immediately go to twenty billion dollars right. tomorrow, like like NFTs. Um, but we do think it's a really interesting diversifier for portfolios. We do think the asset class is very competitive when compared to the S&P, when compared to real estate, when compared to gold, but it is, it is a very different investment than what I would, I would classify in, in an FTS today. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know if the same people who are, you know, trading, you know, people are trading NFTs, you know, scalping them for a couple hundred bucks up and down are the same guys who are going to be buying a Monet or a Bastia. Like Those are not going to be the same people likely, but if they are, you know, you, they should check out Masterworks. In the websites, masterworks.io. Our <laughs> listeners will be fascinated by art. I think we're always looking for different ways to kind of diversify our portfolio. Thanks so much for coming on and, and pounding the table with us. And as we wrap up the show, Tony, as always, 
Things are going to change, actually, this time. We got Dom Rinaldi with us this week, so we're going to hand the mic over to Dom. Dom, we got your show launching here later this week, and we couldn't be more excited. So tell listeners how to listen to it and, and what they should expect. Thanks, Avi. Uh, yes, it will be on the PTT YouTube channel. And the first preview of our deep dive series is going to be NVIDIA. Uh, Jensen Wong, one of the greatest CEOs, founder-led CEOs of all time, a 28-year-old company that's running almost a $500 billion market cap. How could it possibly exponentially grow from here? You got to join. You got to subscribe. You got to smash that like button and you will find out how it can, people. So that will be our first one. I look forward to it. And thank you for having me on the show today, Avi. You can follow me at Dominic Rinaldi 9 uh, on Twitter. Dominic do the shameless vlog. I love it. Yo, it. I can't baby. wait. Clap, I can't wait. It up. See you guys next Bring week, it up.